You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is the end of our series on the parables of Jesus. And our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, and reads this way. Then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, for to those who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason why I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, you will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it, the word of the Lord. I'm fascinated by this passage for a few reasons. I love how the disciples are like, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why, why speak in such a cryptic and easily misunderstood medium? And Jesus is like, who says I want to be understood? <laughs> I don't want to be understood, not by everybody. And then he quotes this passage from the prophet Isaiah, you will indeed listen, but never understand, and you will indeed look, but never perceive. Jesus is, of course, doing this, in my opinion, to define himself as a prophet in the tradition of Isaiah, a prophet who stood in defiance against the nation and its wickedness, and thereby incurred much of the nation's wrath and hatred for it. Jesus is saying, just like Isaiah, my words too fall on deaf ears and hard hearts, and people hate me for the things that I say. I'm reminded of something our friend and, and colleague Tad DeLay once said, any theology with something to say will always conflict with the power structures from which it emerges. Any theology with something to say will always conflict with the power structures from which it emerges. This is the role and function of a prophet in the Hebrew tradition, in a nutshell, basically. To say things that challenge and conflict with the dominant power structures of our society that oppress and harm people. Any theology with something to say will always do that, which means that any theology that doesn't do that, any religion, any theology that supports the status quo and lends comfort to the comfortable and power to the powerful and, and uh, you know, supports the status quo. Any theology that does that, you know, doesn't have much or anything to say. 
So on one level, I think that's what Jesus is saying here in our text today. His parables are meant to subvert and critique the oppressive power structures of this world. But on, on another level, I think he's talking about how the parables themselves are not just object lessons. They're not just pedagogical tools meant to elucidate or illustrate his points. Rather, the parables themselves, in their symbolic, metaphorical, non-literal, cryptic medium, reveal something important about the way that Jesus understood faith and spirituality itself. In the same way that the ancients believed that the spirit world was hidden and unseen, just, just behind this physical world or within it, but hidden and unseen, so the meaning of parables, the, the spirit of parables, if you will, was also hidden and unseen. And therefore, one must be spiritually attuned to divine or decipher their meaning. This made the parables a kind of litmus test to see who had the mind of the spirit and who didn't. Who had spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear? That's what I think Jesus is getting at here when he tells his disciples, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them, to everyone else, it has not been given. So everything comes in parables. There's something kind of Gnostic, actually, about this. Meaning the parables contain secret knowledge that only the initiated can decipher, can, can understand. Only the spiritually, the spiritually enlightened can grasp. Now, on a certain level, I know that's, that's not literally true. I mean, obviously, you don't have to be someone special or even a person of faith to understand the meaning of the parables. You just have to study them in their original context and understand what the metaphors meant by th back then. I don't think you need to be a person of faith to understand what the meaning of like the parable of the Good Samaritan is, right? But nevertheless, I find this idea really fascinating, this, this idea of the symbolic as an inherently spiritual medium of communication that reveals God to us or reveals you know, who has spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. In other words, who is open and who is not. And I think there's something actually kind of true about this, that only those with spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear can understand why, why Jesus spoke in parables, or why so much of scripture, theology, and religion is symbolic or metaphorical in nature, because it is. You see, I'm convinced that it's all symbolic because it's a language for that which we cannot actually understand and express, namely God, the divine, the sacred, the holy, the transcendent, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it, which is to say that if you don't like metaphors, <laughs> If you don't like poetry, symbolism, and other non-literal forms of communication, yeah, then maybe religion isn't for you. And that's okay. Maybe the Bible isn't for you. 
Because, you know, the Bible is largely myth, legend, allegories, poetry, parables, and other forms of symbolic speech. Yes, there's real history in there. Yes. But it's often so intertwined and intermeshed with myth and legend and allegory and symbolism that one cannot delineate between what is literal and what is figurative or what, nor should one try, I'm saying. We shouldn't even try. Because the myths, the legends, the allegories, and the symbolism, I think, are there and meant to elucidate and communicate deeper spiritual truths that the ancients wanted to convey. But again, you know, if, if you don't dig that stuff, if you don't like esoteric wisdom and symbolism, you know, then maybe the Bible and religion isn't for you. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be. But I love it. <laughs> and I think many of you do too. That's why you're here. And I think we love it because it's all an attempt, the symbolism, the, the myths, the legends, the allegories, whatever, it's all an attempt to speak of that, which we cannot ultimately speak of. You know, today's Pentecost, and I grew up as a Pentecostal, born and raised as a Pentecostal, didn't stop being a Pentecostal into my, I guess, late 20s, early 30s. And in Sunday school, they taught us to speak in tongues. It wasn't just baptized in the Holy Spirit. They literally taught us how to speak in tongues to, uh, by getting us to repeat the word banana, banana, banana over and over again. I'm not making this up. Distinctly remember where I was even standing in the Sunday school room when the teacher said, just start saying banana over and over again in order to prime the pump, so to speak. Right? And then your own unique tongue language would, would flow. That's how we learned. Um, and while I'm not a Pentecostal anymore, and I don't speak in tongues anymore, um, I kind of do. What, what, is, what is religion? What is spiritual conversation? What is scripture? What does it mean to express, to engage in sacraments and sing these songs and pray these prayers and read these scriptures and engage in spiritual practices and to speak of, if not a kind of symbolic language? Is it not a kind of tongues, an angelic language, if you will, where we are uttering things too deep for words, speaking of that which we cannot actually speak of, namely God, the infinite, the divine. We're always, to speak of those things is always to speak in tongues. We, but to understand that, to understand it's really symbolic speech, a kind of ecstatic language, a kind of angelic language, if you will. That's the key. We're never speaking in a way that's direct. God is always beyond, you know, transcending our language, our ability, and that makes it bigger and more wonderful, I believe. I love how Caputo puts it, that theologian who's spoken here before, Theology is really anthropology, which is to say theology is always about us and our human ways of speaking about that which we cannot ultimately speak of. God doesn't do theology, right? We, we do theology. Theology is a human invention. It's a human enterprise, which is to say that theology and religion is a vocabulary of the soul. 
and an imperfect one at that, as all languages are imperfect. So God, you could say, is simultaneously that which we cannot speak of and that which we cannot stop speaking of. Because all God talk represents the, the, the depth dimension, I believe, of what it means to be human, to be alive, to be conscious, sentient beings navigating this crazy thing called life in the world. And for me, this is actually really faith-affirming, or what we would call reconstructive rather than deconstructive, because to say that all God talk is symbolic speech, a kind of ecstatic language, a tongue language, <laughs> is really a way of saying that, that God is very real to us. God is a very real presence to us, or a very real experience for us. However, God is not reducible to the words and the terms we come up with for her. God cannot be domesticated by us in that way. So don't misunderstand me when I say that all God talk is symbolic speech or parables, analogs. That's not a way of weakening God in my, in my mind. It's not a way of denying God but it's actually a way of affirming God and making God bigger rather than smaller. At least it is to me. I really believe that becoming, becoming comfortable with, with these things isn't just a more honest approach to faith, but actually the path to the deepest possible kind of faith and spirituality. I'm reminded of something the French philosopher and psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once said. Uh, he was often criticized, even by his most ardent fans, for being contradictory, incoherent, <laughs> and, and too cryptic. He responded and said that anything really true, anything really true is not understandable at first, at least, or perhaps ever. We should therefore read his work and the work of other brilliant writers and thinkers, and he certainly thought he was brilliant, um, <laughs> But we, we should therefore read such work, not necessarily to understand it, but because it does something to us. I love that. And I found that to be true in my own readings and studies and journey. I read certain things, not necessarily to understand them, because they do something to me. And perhaps anything really, really insightful and really true is always a bit beyond us. But this is no reason not to take such things in because such things have an almost magical quality about them in their ability to open our minds and expand our consciousness and transform us in ways that we cannot anticipate. In other words, the goal for me in, in reading scripture and the goal for me in, in practicing a religion, engaging in spiritual practices like the ones that we do here, the goal in engaging in spiritual dialogue and study like we do here is not necessarily to understand, but to have an experience, to alter our consciousness, to expand our consciousness, to be transfigured and transformed to undergo a metamorphosis, if you will, 
to be deconstructed and reconstructed, to connect to this deeper reality that we call God, which of course is shrouded in mystery. This strikes me as the deeper lesson behind Jesus's use of parables. They're not just object lessons or, or pedagogical tools meant to illustrate his points. Rather, I think they function as a lesson about the inherent esoteric nature of all faith and religion, or faith and spirituality itself, and how engaging with religion is always about engaging with, with that which is hidden. That's actually the meaning of words like occult, means that which is hidden, esoteric, mysticism. All those words are synonymous, meaning they have to do with that which is hidden. And exploring these things, diving it, this is always the work of religion. This is always what religion at its heart, I think, is really about. It's about that which is hidden. And exploring that, I think, is inherently transformative and mind-expanding and consciousness-expanding. But only those, only those with eyes to see and ears to hear, spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, can understand, I think, and accept this. That's what I think is really going on in our text today when Jesus says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. I'm reminded of the famous words of Marshall McLuhan, who once said, I've mentioned this before, the medium is the message. Probably familiar with that, right? That axiom. The medium is the message. The message, I believe, behind the, the symbolic and cryptic medium of the parables, and frankly, the message behind a lot of the Bible, faith and spirituality, is that the journey is always one into the unknown. A journey into the hidden and the unseen, a journey into that which we cannot understand, that is beyond human cognition, but one that we can sense, intuit, experience. And it's only our ability to accept that, to embrace the hidden and unknown and this journey. It's only in our ability to accept that, that we can achieve a kind of God consciousness if you will. There's no other path, I don't think. The path lies in the wilderness. The path lies out on the frontier where who knows what you'll encounter. <laughs> it's a frontier. It's the wilderness. Who knows what's out there? Who knows where you'll, where you'll end up? It's an adventure. And who knows how it will change you? I find all that exciting. It's a little scary too. But I find it exciting and enriching and faith-affirming. And that, for me, is the underlying message behind Jesus' use of parables. Let those with eyes to see and ears to hear perceive and understand. And here at Central every week, we engage in this, this spiritual practice, this 
spiritual tradition that has existed in the church for 2,000 years, the Lord's Supper. This is an, this is, we, we do this here every week as a way of connecting ourselves to the tradition that we call Christianity, but also as a kind of mystical practice. This is my body. This is my blood, says the Lord. This is Christ. And by receiving the sacrament, taking it in, literally consuming God, the corpse of God in this case, the body and blood of Christ, we are saying, Christ now lives in me. I am connected to him and he is connected to me. I'm connected to God, the cosmos, the infinite. That's, for me, the deeper mysticism of this sacrament. And so this morning, as you contemplate, I guess, what it means to have spiritual eyes to hear and spiritual, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, meditate on what this, this ancient spiritual practice means to you. Be blessed now in this. And the way that we do this here at Central is that we serve each other. You just take one of these gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the grape juice, receive it, and then you serve the person next to you. Again, as a symbol of what it means to be Christ for each other in the world. Be blessed out of this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So every week here at Central, um, at the end of our service, we have a little dialogue. Usually people like to talk. Um, we're, it's kind of a Q&A, but more of a time to just engage about what I, or whoever was up here, spoke about. And of course, for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, you are welcome to uh, unmute and raise your voice that way, and we can always hear you here in the sanctuary. But yeah, does anybody have any any questions or comments about the parables um, that we've talked about this month or specifically about, I guess, uh, my take on the symbolism of it all and the connection um, to God there. But yeah. Hey, Aaron, it's Akila. Can you hear me? Hey, Akila. Yeah, welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, thank you for the sermon. Um, I think, thank you for the explanation, but I, I'd like to actually take this a little bit more literally and just think that um, Jesus is saying, when I tell you, love your neighbor, you all know what that means. But when I give you a story that shows you how to love your neighbor, then you get it. And um, when he says to the, to the disciples, like you get it, like they get it, but the other people he's communicating with may not. And then sometimes maybe they don't, because that's why we get the story of like the um, Jesus in the ship and all that stuff. So um, yeah, because it's different. I'm just thinking of an example and I'll try to be brief, but my daughter has been watching Shameless and I'm like, right. So if somebody tells you addiction is chaotic, if that's not your experience, you don't get it, but you see it as family living in the chaos of addiction now you have something to hang it on, to hang that idea onto, and now you understand what that means. So that was just kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. 
Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> somebody else, any comments, questions? Yeah, Marsha, do you want to use the mic? Okay. That's a good question. Marsha is asking, do I think Jesus saw mystery in his father? That's actually a really good question. Um, the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> that, should, that should be painted up on the walls back here. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think when we talk, when we ask, when you ask that question, it's kind of a loaded question, right? Because which Jesus are we talking about? The Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Are we talking about the historical Jesus? Who, of course, we don't really have good access to. All we have is the Jesus that we find in the Gospels, which has been filtered through the, the Gospel writers um, and their tradition. Um, I personally think that because the Gospels are written in such a way that are loaded with symbolism and, and are written in such a way, you know, for example, I'll just take a story that we tend to read historically. Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. He's baptized in the river, goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted and tested and by, by the devil, we're told, and he's fasting. Well, that story is a perfect mimetic reenactment of the Exodus. After Israel passes through the Red Sea or is baptized in the Red Sea, they're driven out into the desert where they're tested not for 40 days, and 40 nights, but for 40 years. And they're hungry, as Jesus was, and they're tempted and tried. But where Israel failed the desert test, so to speak, Jesus passed and became a kind of new Moses. And he inaugurated a new exodus, in, not to a geographic promised land, a physical promised land, but to into a spiritual promised land called the kingdom of God. Okay, so how obviously that story, you know, is deeply symbolic, and should it be read literally? Is there, you know, or not? Is it simply a figurative story meant to teach literal spiritual truths? Yeah, I think so. That's how I read it. You know, I could I could go on and talk about the miracle stories, Jesus opening the eyes of the blind and opening the ears of the deaf, and then followed by a story of Jesus' disciples having their spiritual eyes open to who he really was and what his message really meant. Well, the miracle story is just there to like, like parables, to elucidate this point of spiritual awakening, spiritual, you know, having your spiritual eyes open. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I like what Caputo says. Jesus didn't just tell parables. Jesus was a parable. What, why should that diminish the power of the Gospels at all? Why should that be, you know, in any way something to wring our hands over or to think that, oh, that this calls God himself into question? No, it doesn't. But why, why should that diminish any meaning or, or be deconstructive even? Or a place that leads us into a place of doubting God's existence. It doesn't have to do that. I'm just I'm just responding to your question, Marsha, by saying the, the problem is the gospels themselves, the Jesus that we find in the gospels is so encouched in what we would call, not what they would call, but what we would call legend and myth, okay, and, and symbolism, that to say, did Jesus think of his father in a mysterious way. For me, the answer is the Jesus that we find in the gospel is pretty mysterious. And he's speaking of mysteries that we cannot 
fully expressed with human language. To me, that's the depth dimension of all of this. It's about, it's about engaging with the transcendent, experiencing you know, these ineffable, ineffable meaning you don't have words for it. Unconditional, these things, the love, the thing about love. How do you define love? There's a million love songs, you know, all trying to define love. You can't, that's what makes it wonderful. That's what makes God, I think, wonderful. You can't really put your finger on it. That's why it's God. So yeah, the mystery is hard baked into it for me. Yes. The answer to your question for me, my opinion, my reading, yes. Jesus, um, the Jesus we find in the gospels related to his father in a mysterious way. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody else have thoughts about this? Anybody else want to respond? Offer their opinion? It's just mine. You don't have to, you don't have to agree with me. Other comments, other thoughts, questions today? Yeah. <sighs> I have no idea. She's asking if, I, if Jesus felt his mother was a mystery. What do you mean by mystery? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a mystery. Yeah, we don't understand the relationship between Jesus and his mother. Then there's not much there to go on anyway, you know, the text, you know, but it's all what? Faith. Sure. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Hey, Aaron, it's Emily. Hey, Emily. Um, I just wanted to say, like, the thing that I thought of when you were saying the whole, like, um, some eyes see and some eyes don't, um, like that's kind of how I felt growing up in the born again, Christian church, where it was like, you know, the pastors and the elders are special people because God has basically allowed them to see, um, for them to get up and basically translate the Bible for you and tell you how to live and what's right and what's wrong. Um, but it is not for the people sitting in the thing he you know we only learned from his translation because it was always a him obviously um and so I, it's just a sort of uh, it's another manipulation that i find um of of then where they separated you know well these these guys know the stuff and you're just supposed to learn from them because you're just you know a, a person who goes here and you're you're seeking but you have, you know, these people are the ones who are responsible for showing you and teaching you. Yeah, good point. Um, obviously, that's critiqued and deconstructed here, that idea of the pastor being the answer man. Um, you know, thank you, yeah, Emily. Good stuff. Somebody else? Yeah, Anne. Um, you were saying something that I have found true in my experience very, very much. And we talked about this earlier this week that um, a big part of my journey of faith has been um, just leaning into things that I genuinely don't understand still. So I, I'm a very like 
I can be a very black and white thinker, I'm an accountant. I like things to add up at the bottom. Um, it's just the way my brain works. And um, when things were no longer adding up, I had a couple of options. One was to just walk away because I couldn't have the cognitive dissonance or find other ways that people experience this. So I just, you know, started listening to one author or speaker or podcast or whatever, which led me to another, which led me to another. And I would listen to things and read things that just resonated for some reason that I didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. It didn't um, seemingly follow what I thought scripture said, um, but I knew it felt right. And so I would just follow that and slowly, slowly, slowly my perception of God and my perception of faith and my experience of faith has changed. And very, very, very slowly, it's beginning to um, kind of coalesce into something I can actually articulate a little bit. For a long time, I couldn't articulate any of it. I could just like say, I know that doesn't work for me. And so I'm looking for another way to see it. And it's, and so, and it was scary. I think that's mainly the thing that I want to say as part of that is that it felt like, um, you know, it, at the time, it, it really did feel like I was walking away from everything that was like my foundation. And yet, I knew it was what I had to do. And so my comment is for anybody else who might be in that position, like it, as much as most of us in the evangelical faith were taught not to trust your heart, trust your heart, like trust what is resonating for you and move towards it and see where it goes. Because, you know, Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's great. Anybody else today? Hey, Aaron, it's Akila again. Hey, Akila, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. I had a question. Yeah. Because you, and I don't know if you have enough time to talk about this right now, but you mentioned that you were taught to speak in tongues. You no longer do that. Can you talk about why that is or how that's changed for you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, definitely wasn't like an overnight shift. It was part of my larger journey um, into what we call deconstruction, um, kind of shedding a lot of the faith and, and understandings of God from my childhood. Um, and that happened um, probably... I, I think I was still engaging in speaking in tongues privately as part of my devotional practice. Um, even like, I'm trying to think, because I've been here since 2010. Some, somewhere around 2010 is when I stopped. So it was, it was during or right after seminary at Fuller 
Um, somebody will do that to you, by the way. <laughs> Annie's laughing. Yeah, you get it. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, um, for me, it just, it, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile it anymore with who I was as a person of faith and my understanding of, you know, the supernatural or the lack thereof. Um, you know, I, I think I didn't, I'm, I'm trying to give you like a really like clear answer as to why, but I think the easiest answer is to say, I just didn't believe it anymore. And I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, this was something that um, I, I just don't think was even that, um, the, the way that we were practicing it, the way I was raised practicing it really was kind of, un, I hate this word, unbiblical, <laughs> so conservative, but it, but it wasn't really even grounded in, I came to terms with the fact that, yes, if, you know, the idea of speaking in tongues and, at Pentecost and Acts chapter two, they were speaking actual other human languages that were understood as the story goes, uh, actual other languages of that day and time. They weren't speaking and 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 the, the 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 speaking in tongues that I was my actual tongue language sounded remarkably similar to everybody else's that I that I knew. It was just phonetics, and it wasn't even like it even sound like another language. Um, I'm giving you sort of like the long answer, um, but it's complicated. It really has to do just in general with my deconstruction and loss of thinking of God in the Pentecostal way I was raised. I guess that's the most simplest way to put it. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually. Thank you. Okay. And now I'm going to be thinking about this more later today. I'm like, yeah, what were the actual reasons that I went through? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Thank you for that question. All right. Anybody else today? And I want to be clear now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I don't want to denigrate someone else's, I don't want to yuck someone else's yum, you know, with that, that answer and make it sound like, you know, if you're still engaging in mystical practices like ecstatic speech, you know, you, th you think, I actually think of speaking in tongues a lot like a kind of meditation. It was a way of, for me at least, it was a way of kind of letting go of my ego or my conscious mind and experiencing God, the presence of God, as I would call it. Um, in those private moments, or even in a corporate worship service, it was a kind of altered state of consciousness. There's something kind of cool about that. I actually want to affirm altered states of consciousness. Even now, um, I, I think ultimately, anytime we're engaging in a spiritual practice, like the Lord's Supper, attending church, singing songs, praying, it's all a kind of attempt to, to, to find an altered state of consciousness that where we're transformed or our thinking is transformed and we we encounter what we call the divine, the holy, the sacred. So whatever gets you there, as long as it's healthy, okay, as long as it's, as long as it's healthy. And to be clear, I'm not opposed to doing mushrooms. I haven't yet, but, you know, <laughs> I have lots of friends who have taken, who, who do that now as part of their spiritual practice. And that can be cool. As long as it's healthy, as long as it isn't oppressive to you or somebody else, by all means do it. Dance. You go to a concert. What, what, what is a concert? A rock concert. You know, the lights, the music. You know, you're, you're there to kind of have this altered state of consciousness. You know, what you, spiritual practices, religion has always been about that, and it still is. But for me, the tongues thing just doesn't get me there anymore. 
because it comes with too much baggage from my youth probably, but doesn't necessarily have to be that way for you. Okay, just wanted to put that little disclaimer in there at the end. Okay, Marcia, did you have one more thing? Go ahead. Okay, well, that's a great question, but that's a whole, that's like a, a rabbit hole right now. I, um, I think that's a great question, certainly one that we've addressed before, but that's going to be a long answer, and I feel like we don't really have time for that right now, but maybe you and I can talk later about that. Does that sound good? Okay, cool. Um, all right, well, let's conclude our service as we always do with this corporate benediction, nice way of bringing us all together and ending on a high note. Let's say this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in via Zoom. Go in peace. Music